morning, ladies and gentlemen. You are more than welcome to this another episode of the Coffee at Eleven show, brought to you by Wigwam and supported in season four here by the Limerick Post newspaper, keeping Limerick posted. Hashtag Limerick and proud. Delighted to have with us here today our very special guest and a new friend of mine, but a man that I'm intrigued by, and his name is Brian J. Riley. Brian, say hello. Cheers is with your mug, and I will introduce you then. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Thanks. Well, it's, it's lovely to have you here. Just sit back for two minutes and I'll allow me skim through this. I got the CV for this man, right, in terms of preparation. We always send out a guest bio sheet, okay? And uh, they usually only take one page. <laughs> Brian's doesn't. So who are we talking to? Brian Joseph Riley, born 28th June 1951, which means very soon you'd achieve level 70. Uh, business name, he says, I'm semi-retired, but really only getting into his stride, uh, almost age 70, having rediscovered what it is I'm actually good at. And we're looking forward to hearing what you believe that to be. What's your business do? He says, I served, I'm serving on several boards, Magnet Networks, Drawbridge Hospitality, Italanda Productions, working on an In Our Nature series of international concerts featuring, amongst others, none other than Andrea Bocelli. Of course you are. And uh, C19 slash ESI, a qualified introductions group working with companies like no Noveris and EcoHydra and working alongside John Webb O'Rourke. And John has been a guest uh, and indeed an audience favorite here on the show. Uh, what's your business do? Uh, used to employ hundreds of people in various enterprises involved in printing, publishing and logistics. Nowadays, it's mostly about bringing groups of talented people together and making things happen, fundraising, etc. And I can testify to that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I came across Brian first uh, in Tangible Ireland in the Tangible Summer School in Kilmallock, County Limerick, a number of years ago. And he intrigued me because he started talking about this thing called Right to Homes. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Um, Brian himself has been often described as a serial entrepreneur, a consummate networker, skillful persuader, descriptions that he's become more comfortable with as he reaches his 70th year or level 70, as we say here in the cafe, Brian. And he continues to reinvent himself and is actually involved in several boards, helping to, to, to draft much needed legislation around uh, debt in the country and enjoying the joys of life, joys of life with his wife, Ireland, three adult children and their recently arrived little, little grandchildren. And then there's a whole list of stuff that we could read out. I'm not going to, I'm just going to touch on a few. Uh, he calls himself or has been known to be known as a practicing catalyst. <laughs> That's wonderful. Persistence is a quality, key quality. Don't look back in anger is his motto for life. Uh, some pain involved here, I think, in shares, uh, the crash in 2000, property crash in 2010. 2010. He's a master at joining the dots, embracing possibilities, corporate int introductions, and is a business connector. Some pet hates. The social contract failure, Irish politics failure, vulture culture, uh, the Irish MSM failure, and basically general apathy within Irish society. And his passions, Italian 90 and music, live music sessions, and we talk about the midnight sessions a little while, and of course, right to homes, which is not-for-profit. Not and finally, before we bring you in, Brian, the, uh, something nobody knows about Brian, uh, he once hired a Catholic nun and paid for her car supporting Jim Connolly's rural resettlement. There you go. There's a varied CV. Thank you for that, Brian. Brian, you're very welcome to the Coffee at 11 show. Please, as we say to all of our guests, we can sort of Google you now, right? Um, we can sort of Google you now, but would you oblige and bring us back to little Brian Riley? Bring us back to those early years, please. Of course I will, Colm. And, and, and as I said in my response to you, I, when you put something up on Facebook, I said I'm flattered and honoured um, and bemused by the fact that I'm even here because I've seen some of your shows and I have to congratulate you and the team. They're very interesting. 
and I've seen some of the other people on, so I'm wondering what the hell, or I could use another expletive, but what the hell I'm doing here. Um, interesting, before I jump into the school, and good morning and all the rest of it, uh, before I do that, um, the, it, it just struck me there when you mentioned about vulture culture. And I, just, and I had said to you before that if it wasn't for vulture funds, I probably would never have gone to Kilmallock and met Raymond Sexton. And therefore, I wouldn't have met you. And then, of course, if COVID hadn't come along, um, we wouldn't have the midnight sessions and we wouldn't be treated to you with your guitar there in the background in a different, in a different phase, singing away. But anyway, here we are. Retrospective is not something I'm comfortable you know, I don't do it. And I, it just, this forced me to have a look back. Um, hence the don't look back in anger. So I look back with joy at things. So like one of those uh, things we see now all too often on TV, these series, you know, where they come out and they probably irritate some people. So uh, apologies in advance if I do that. But I have a tendency to jump backwards and forwards. And I know people in real cafes um, often remarked to me, said, but Jesus, Brian, we started out talking about right to homes and now we're talking about music. How did that happen? So if I do a little bit of jumping backwards and forwards, please forgive me. I was struck by um, Joe Biden when he said there recently, I think it was at the Patrick's Day thing, that the Irish are great. They're nostalgic about the future. And that would, that would certainly apply to me. So the sooner we can get to the future, the better. Um, in terms of the past and schooling and all of that stuff, um, I was born and reared in in, in Sutton or Baldoyle, depending on who you were talking to. If you were talking to my dad, who we were very proud of him, he he worked, never missed a day's work in his life. So a hardworking parent, um, Alfie and Nora. Alfie worked for the GNR, then, then chorus somewhere, Aaron. He brought the last tram up over the Hill of Holtz on the number nine. Big deal in our lives, you know, and we were very, very proud of him. Funny enough, he had a great sense of humour, my dad, and he had smoked Woodbine since he was a kid. And I was the eldest of five children, which, I, which I'll touch on as well. And uh, I remember when he was passing at, at age 72, ironically, he said to me, you know, Brian, he said, I'm really delighted you're the eldest and you never smoked. And we had a big emphasis on sport and so on. But he said, I have to tell you, I enjoyed every single one of them. <laughs> that's, that's almost one of the last things he said to me. And off he went, happy out. Anyway, we were born there. Um, if you were talking to my mother, we were reared in Sutton, North County, Dublin. If you were talking to my dad, who was more realistic, the other half of the house, we lived in the station house um, at Sutton Railway Station. But most of the house and the garden was in Baldoyle. So it was either Baldoyle or Sutton, and, and I grew up with that thing. We had a very happy, certainly I had a very happy childhood. I think typical of a lot of Irish families back then, no sign of the Celtic Tiger, just hard work. We didn't have a whole lot that I, that I could recall, and yet we had everything as well. You know, So we wanted for nothing. And I never, any time I think of them, that's all I can think of. You know, he was, Alfie was a big man, but a gentle man in the in the true sense i remember when he passed away i got that put on his gravestone a gentleman but of course did the, the, the engravers put it in one word and i meant it it's two but anyway that's neither here nor there um the we're going to cut you know i mentioned to you before something and this has gone to the present from those early days so 
everything was normal. Um, and in fact, in a, in a very recent development, um, RTE ran a, a, a documentary there before Christmas on a famous photographer who operated from Francis Street in Indiana City. And this man had died and left his daughter this legacy of all these um, um, negatives that, that hadn't been processed. So she set up a website, started doing this, introducing all these photographs from the 50s and 60s of Dublin and, and, and what was the greater Dublin at that, part, at that time. <laughs> so I have one aunt. There's a, a, our family picture jumped up in this and then was, was copied and, and covered in Dublin Gazette that a friend of mine owns. And here's, here's, here's our family front and centre in this whole thing from way back then. And the, the really funny thing, I suppose, from that is, again, it goes back to the childhood. But here we are next Sunday or this coming Sunday. The, 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 the people who are still alive, obviously, in, from that photograph are having a, a, a Zoom get together. Because some of them live in Canada, some live, you know, in in, in uh, the Philippines, in in America, you know, all over the place. So we haven't been really in touch because it's a quite a big uh, family, and uh, this is this has provided the opportunity to do come that. Come here, come here. That's just provided us with the opportunity to share a photograph that we dug out from the archives. And uh, Eamon, when you're ready, please, you might just line up a photograph that we dug out from the archives. Since you mentioned that, Brian. The magic of technology, and uh, we may get an introduction to that family that you've just referred to. And it was the famous Francis Street photographer took these images. And you can imagine the surprise for um, from that generation. There you go. Uh, yeah. So the, from that, the, my grandparents are sitting. So the, here we are. God knows um, um, what sixty years later, and and this photograph pops up, and there's the whole family and. There's, um, they had five children. Uh, my dad is there back right, and my mother beside him. Um, I'm in the picture there as well, with the gawky view. I don't know if you, you can point to it, but just uh, in the second row. <laughs> anyway, this... Um, You're not the angelic-looking fellow with the tie, no? No, just to the right of that. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the um, and, and cousin Bill is just there, second from the front, the, the guy from the Midnight Sessions who made a huge entrance, he lives in Canada and he's just second from the right there at the front, uh, all grown up and older now, of course. But anyway, that, that photograph, in that they had five children and, um, and, and all of them went on to have their own families. And with one exception, a famous cousin of mine who had two fishing boats in Greystones, would you believe, and he was a larger-than-life character, Thomas Greedy, Lord Reston. He's the only one that passed away. Everybody else is still alive. And my aunt, who's 93, is the, the adult furthest left on the, from the second back from the front there with her son, one of her sons. But she is 93. And so she's watching RTE before Christmas. And up this photograph pops, which is nothing but happy memories. There was a real Dublin family there. And... Um, that's great wonderful. stuff. So we're going we're gonna to reminisce about all of that on Sunday. Ah, that's wonderful. I'd, inv I'd invite you all in, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we'll happily send you the image so that you can use it for your family uh, on Sunday. Folks, thanks for that, Eamon. You can drop it, bring us back into the cafe. Well done. Okay, so... We're going to pull so up Simon Smith. Roll it there, Colette moment. Yeah, um, thank, you, thank you, Eamon. Um, I was on the school thing and the home life column, so just to get... To, to finish that bit, you know, the whole, certainly my memories of home life out there beside the sea, 
in uh, Sutton Valdoy, whichever, um, was just wonderful and a wonderful upbringing. It was it was that that kind of um, that time thinking back to that. It brought me into two little anecdotal stories. One was to make ends meet. My dad did what some people might remember, where the Gaelian pools. So we would get on our bicycles and cycle all the way around Hoth, Rohini, uh, down to Donamade, all of those areas, cover the whole lot, and uh, collect these Gaelian pools. Little was I to know that years later in my business life, I would not only meet, but I would befriend Donald O'Moran, who was the, the famous founder of Gaelian. And he and I got on like a house on fire, and we we were just we just had a, a great time. And I used to reminisce about going in with the bag of money on a on a Sunday into into Eli Square and paying the, handing it in, you know, and all that stuff. And he got great fun out of that. That was one anecdotal story from those days in the past. But another one came up even more recently with somebody you I think you might know and you may have come across, um, and it relates to that whole deal with Andrea Bocelli and so on. And that's Michael Durkin. So because of my interest in music, um, a mutual friend of ours, Jerry Beads, uh, had, of Michael's and mine, had, um, he, had, he knew I had got Glenn Hansard to do a number of concerts for Right to Homes in Cork and, and so on. Um, and I was going to have a little music festival, a little session in town in, 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 um, um, opposite the Jervis Centre there. So... We were working away doing that, and ironic. Another little ironic link was um, this friend said to me, "Brian, you should meet this guy. He lived most of his life in Australia, reared his family there, but he's a huge interest in music. I think the two of you would get on." So I said, "Okay," and we arranged to meet in the Tram Cafe. I don't know if you know the Tram Cafe. Anyway, it's a it's a ter terrific innovation uh, where they got this old tram, they converted it into a cafe. It's directly in that little square opposite um, the Jervis Centre. So I go down and I meet Michael, who's now a fantastic friend, and we've travelled all over the place and we're involved in a lot of things together. And he says, so Michael sits down and for once I yawned and I let uh, Michael get on telling me a story. So he tells me all about uh, emigrating to with his wife Kate to Australia and to rearing the, the family out there and that um, he had big pubs, he had a television show, he had all this great stuff and that he had come, come back to Ireland with two, two of his children had come back with their families here and two had stayed. And this was all terrific. And then he says to me, not bad, he says, for a fellow who went to Canisys, Christian Brothers School. And I said, Jesus, I went to Canisys. And he says the difficulty, he says, you did in your arse. And I said, I did, actually. <laughs> I said, I went to Canisys. And then he says, and he hates me telling this story, but he says, then he looks, and so we're sitting outdoors having a cup of coffee at the tram cafe, doing this type of thing, getting to know each other. And then he says to me, um, he says, oh, well, I went to O'Connell's afterwards. And I said, well, so did I. And he says, and you couldn't make this up. This is real Irish story, right? So here's a fella I, have, I, I didn't think I had ever laid eyes on telling me this story. And then he says, um, um, I did, I went to a car, and I said, well, so did I. He says, do you remember a fella called Francis Craven? And I said, do I remember him? I said, I sat beside him. And he said, well, so did I. <laughs> so here we were, 60 years later, meeting for the first time, like, having sat two seats away from each other all those years um, before. 
So that I thought I that was. Love I love it. Yeah. I love it. Come here, I'm going to invite you to have a yawn, as you say yourself, right? Yeah. And a, and a sip of coffee for a second. I just want to capture a few nuggets that came out of th those few minutes. Uh, look, look back with joy. That was a lovely phrase. You said, I don't look back in anger, I look back with joy. That was just beautiful. Nostalgic about the future, classic Irish trait, according to uh, President Biden, and we're delighted with that. The sutton Bal doyle divide, I get that because my dad's here in the room. We live on Tonleggy Road, and we're in the uh, odd numbers. And the odd numbers, apparently, we're in Kulak, right? And the even numbers, the far side, they're the poshies, they're in Rohini. I remember, so we had this... Kulak Rohini thing going on, same as Sutton uh, Baldoyle. I remember at one stage putting my foot in it and saying to a colleague in work at the time that I was from Rohini. He says, yeah, go away from you. You're not from Rohini. You're from Kulak, through and through. And it's so true. The gentleman, I love that, uh, the way you refer to it as a gentleman. And uh, um, even though they got it wrong on the, on the, uh, the headstone, it's still there for one and yeah. all. Come here, um, you were in a hospital for a year. What was that about? Well, that goes back to the, you know, the, the happy family thing. So there I was, the eldest of five. I've, I've uh, a brother, Harry, a brother, Dermot, and a brother, Al, and I have a sister thrown in the middle of all of that. Um, she's the academic. The rest were sports mad. So the whole family was just the classic uh, Irish family, as we now know. Five kids um, um, working away, going to school, in and out on the train and all the rest of it. And nothing interfering until... A fairly, I suppose, traumatic thing, certainly for my parents and, and clearly for me as well, is one day um, I, was, I had played a lot of football at that time and I had just recently engaged with Home Farm Football Club. So on a, one famous Sunday morning, I went down, I was playing a match that morning, centre half, which is the position I always ended up having um, uh, because of my height. So even today, I'm, I'm six, one and a half and nearly 18 stone. So <laughs> imagine why. It wasn't because of my aggressive or any aggressive nature. But anyway, I was doing that. The fellow in front of me, Colm, if you know your soccer, didn't jump. So I went over the, over the top of him and came down bad, badly on my arm and broke it. So ambulance, off I went into the hospital. There's a very, very famous um, old uh, story now, which again, looking back, you know, you didn't realise at the time just how famous it was, but there was a place called The Grove in, in Clontarf. And we used to go there religiously, even though we were only 15, 16 and so on. Um, I, had a, I had a reason to want to go there that night. Now, I'd broken my arm, so I'm at home in, in Baldoyle or Sutton. And um, I didn't take my... A friend of mine came and collected me. I, ironically, from, from where near, near Tangley Road, so he came out and, and collected me uh, on, a, on his motorbike. Um, I snuck out without my helmet, went to the Grove. And on the way home that night, we were in a head-on collision, just where Bal Doyle meets Sutton, funny enough, ironically enough. And um, that was a big trauma for my parents because I was out of it for, for a couple of days. And I remember waking up in Kappa Hospital with, with everybody all around me and tubes and things and plaster up to my neck. And, and, and the, the strange and odd thing about that experience, and I put a note down to self, was, was that a life or a character-changing uh, episode? Who knows? You know, because I was nearly killed, uh, but yet I escaped, and I, and I was thankful for the, for the fact that I was alive, obviously. Um, and one of the things, if anybody has any experience of Kappa, one of the unusual things about it is 
most of the patients there, certainly the ones recovering from those type of traumatic uh, accidents, they're not actually sick. Your bones, like everything down the left side of me was broken. And I know, I remember another big decision my poor dad, a quiet man that he was, he, he had to make, and my mother, Nora, she, they, they, had, they came in and the doctors, two wonderful doctors, if anybody remembers, a Mulvihill and a Macaulay. They were two of the top orthopedic surgeons. And they said to them, unfortunately, or fortunately, Brian's, at Brian's age, he's, he's in a growing phase. So if we leave the legs and the, the way we've done it, he's going to end up with, a, a, you know, with, the, with heels this size. So they made the big decision then to re-break everything and put in steel pins, which is why I spent so much time in hospital. So anyway, that was, that was one of those things. I was sitting beside a fellow, Lord rest him, he passed away, but he was, he was in the hospital bed and we spent most of that year outdoors in Kappa because it was a wonderful summer. And um, I had my 16th birthday there. They brought in a cake and I have a cousin Irene who used to come in and bring all our model friends in and sit around my bed telling stories. It was great. I was very popular in the hospital. But he, he played guitar, Tommy, and he was terrific. And I think that's where the love of that came from there. And then, of course, I remember the great feeling of achievement and, and relief walking out of the hospital at the end of it all you know i had to learn to walk again because when you're on your back for so long and then so that all happened and my dad i remember that moment with my dad walking out and i think possibly that shapes your philosophy about looking forward and not looking backwards and maybe or maybe not i don't know that's great great. thanks for sharing that 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 was a big trauma i i was laughing until you said you nearly died right i was laughing about the fact that you snuck out because we all did it we all snuck out of the house at night and yes we went to the grove too and we snuck out we went to the grove and got caught and we got killed except you nearly did get killed right so, uh, but, but the one thing that struck me out of that little episode, Brian, is you appear to have always been a questioner. That's the, road, the word I wrote down. You were questioning, is this a, a life-changing episode? Maybe not in those terms and at that time at only 16 with all those models hanging around the bed, right? Um, but, uh, you, but the other thing that struck me was you pay attention. You, you gave us the names of the two doctors that attended to you when you were 16. Like, that's 54 years ago. And yeah, well, they, they, you know, they, that's like your... your, your your school teacher or whatever. I, uh, Jesus, I, I, I think of a bad memory actually about things, but I went to the, to the national school in Baldoyle and in, a, in an ironic link, the, the first teacher, and I remember my dog, we had a dog and he used to come down to the school and sit, I remember I was the eldest, so I'm the first going to school and the dog used to follow us down to the school and sit outside and he'd be out there when we'd come out and this sister, Eucaria, ran the, the, the school in Baldoyle. And when I turned up in, in Kappa Hospital, guess who's running Kappa Hospital? Sister Eucaria. And then just one, one little anecdotal thing again, just I don't know how, as I said, people weren't, they were, they were convalescing, but they weren't really sick. So this fella who had fallen off a building in London was in the bed beside me. Not literally beside me, but in the next bed, and he he uh, it was his twenty first or something, some big birthday, and Guinness used to supply uh, free Guinness to the to the adult people for convalescing. So I got I, at this stage I had I had been uh, allowed into a wheelchair. So I I broke out of the ward, St Joseph's ward, went down in the wheelchair, got a case of this beer, 
got the your man got the guitar out. We had a little session outside. A couple of the nurses joined us. The poor guy fell out of the bed and rebroke his back. So, Sister Eucharia, I'm only after thinking of this now. Sister Eucharia, my punishment column was there was a television in the ward. And I remember I mean, all these guys were sitting along there and they turned my bed the other way around. So my punishment was that I couldn't watch the telly. And this, this, right. taxi, this Dublin taxi driver came in who, was, who had been in the hospital and was released. He came in with some pals and they put a mirror under my bed on a piece of string that the nurses didn't know, the nun didn't know about. And I could pull the thing up and the mirror would come up and I could sit there watching the telly. <laughs> oh, Brian, hilarious. <laughs> We're doing great. We're doing great. We're doing great. Stay here for a sec. Right. So in, in Wigwam, we talk about the one thing, Brian. It's, we, we've got this thing about the one thing. And it reminds me of the one job you ever had in your life. Tell us about the one job and then bring us into your career, please. Your Those early years are the Yeah. Uh, so so um, the, the, the one job. Yeah. So when I got back out of that, I obviously couldn't go on in the train because I was on these calibers and I had crutches and all that stuff. So I had to. I had to go to Finton's uh, Christian Brothers in, in Sutton and I knew nobody there. So I had to go in raw and um, one of the guys I had met in hospital, funny enough, his father worked in the print industry and I remember he contacted me. There were no mobile phones, obviously, in those days, but he contacted me and he said, um, my dad said that there's a new company starting in Kulak the um, European Printing Corporation, and it's where the where the uh, the cinema complex is now, the opposite Cadbury's. And he said there's apprenticeships uh, there, possibility. So I told my dad, and of course in those days, as you know, people felt that a, an apprenticeship was a really good thing, and it, and it was, I suppose. So we decided there and then that this traipsing up and down to uh, Finton's and and going around, I was really playing catch up, and I missed a whole year effectively um, so I opted for the apprenticeship and I went down and got the got uh, uh, taken on uh, as did a hundred other fellas and actually that you know anecdotally I think I may have told you before uh, um, on one of the days in that job my only job um, Robert Maxwell owned the company and he was an MP in the UK he was a huge man I actually met him I ended up meeting him because I had been headhunted to go to take it to go into a company in in uh, Terenure and at this stage Irene and I were married and we had our own children or starting our own family and we were now living in Skerries of all places and um, I went over to this company and uh, and that brought me into the whole newspaper world and all the rest of it but Maxwell when when uh, word came out that I was leaving and I was taking seven guys with me it's a long story I won't go into it but I was taking seven guys with me out of, out of this European printing place. And Maxwell got a hold of me one day when he was over, a huge man now, he says to me. And he was all very nice and we were brothers and he was a labour guy and it was all this. But when he got you into a room on his own, you fucker, you fucking do this, you do this, that and the other. And he gave it to me of both barrels. And he said, and this was a real threat, he said, "For I will make two people redundant for every person you take out of this company. Yeah. So I said, okay, I won't do it. Um, more yeah <laughs> and I went straight out and did it and um, the rest of it but anyway the, wow. fun, a funny story and I wasn't going to tell this but I will do it now anyway because I'll give you the short version so 
in that job, it was a great place. And I started up a whole training uh, thing there with the Irish Times and I got people so that they would, they would have multiple skills rather than just the one. So I was responsible for that. And I, and, um, I enjoyed my time there, worked really hard. And this is, you know, during that period, Colin, we, I was working seven hours a day, 12 days a week. Now, if you do the maths, that, ends, that, that still adds up to over 80 hours. And we were, you know, we were working flat out and we had the, the house out in Scaries. We were, the, our army was effectively wearing the kids. And uh, I was working my ass off in there morning, noon and night. But I ended up owning that company. And uh, that's a long story. And I ended up uh, with contracts with the Sunday World, the, the independent newspapers, the farmers, with 30 odd different publications. Fantastic. And it was a wonderful time. You know, when you have that energy. Bula boss, Bula boss from the, from the audience. Yeah. Uh, but then I, then I went, um, then I went, um, um, I, set up the, I set up a company called The Case Room, which is, if anybody knows anything about printing and, and newspapers and things, that's the actual unit that, that goes to production, not like with today's technology. Um, so we had a fantastic team. We worked every hour that God sent us. We did. We said yes to everything. That brought Robbie Robinson into my life, the Sunshine Radio man. It brought, and I became a shareholder there. That brought, as I said, Anish, a, a, a the newspaper, the Grey Lynn uh, initiative, Don the Moron. So I had great fun with it as well and great time. Sorry to interrupt you, but you know what? That, that, that's, that's the thing. That's the thread here that I'm getting and having known you for the last number of years. It's all about fun. And by you just being yourself and being out there and having fun, you attract all these incredible people with, uh, uh, with stories themselves and opportunities. And, and you're this master connector. It's just incredible. So, well, I didn't, I didn't realize myself, Colm, at the time, but the instinct, the national instinct was to be helpful and to reach out and to be, I suppose, that much abused term, but to be entrepreneurial in your spirit, at least. Um, you know, in the, when we had this thing called the case room in Terran Europe, we were, as I said, we were working morning, noon, and night. And it wasn't very, uh, God, if I, if, I, if I may, I'll just tell a funny thing. Because I had a grumpy guy, a lovely fella called Martin McNeely. He was a great friend, and himself and his wife, Linda. But Martin was a grumpy Northern Ireland, from Donegal, Northern. And uh, I organized this seminar, and I just, I decided, you know, we get, all the teams, the journalists, the, the people in the newspaper, all my crew, all working. And I cut this guy in. He was a consultant on one of these, how to be, how to go forward and how to be better and how to do all the rest. So we paid for this consultant. We bought in the drinks, the sandwiches. We had a room, massive room. It's now the, I think it's Lidl or Aldi in Terrier, opposite the church, huge building. It was the old tram shed, ironically. And uh, packed. And in comes this guy, and I'm paying a fortune for this fella. And, and, and Grumpy is sitting in the, front, in the front row. And I'm looking forward to this. And this is all about communication. So, you know, talk to your customers. This customer is important. That guy's important. So don't be, you know, just treat everybody and be helpful. So your man comes up, Colin, and he's, he, go, he gets a blackboard. We'd set that up for him, you know, and, and uh, he starts writing. And he says, now, he says, when I came in here today, with a British accent, of course, he says, I formed an opinion of Brian, of this place, of what this is all about. He said, that's, that's first impressions, very important. He said, and you probably all formed an impression as well coming in here. And the man grumpy, he says, no, no. He says, we're taking questions later. Hand up again. He says, your man says, yeah. Okay, he says, what is it? He says, just one observation. 
and he answers, yes, yes. He says, you can't fucking spell. <laughs> and he just threw the whole thing. Because your man's looking around now, looking at the chart, and he's trying to figure out which word he was after getting wrong. And, if, and funny enough, I think, he, it, it, I think it was the word catalyst. And I remember at, at the time saying, answering somebody off the cuff about religion. And I said, well, I think I'm a practicing catalyst. But anyway, the... The, during that period, I got involved with Noel Campbell Sharp, a whole load of other publishers and people, and um, so much so that the Irish Times ran a feature on me back then, and they nicknamed me Anko Riley because I had set up little cubicle units within our place for people who wanted to start their own publications. And some of those went on and, and became terrific car driver and computer scope and various other things. So it was a real family. It was like a clan. And I was providing the money. But the, well, sorry, our customers were providing the money. Uh, I was wonderful. making money hand over fist. And <laughs> Irene, Irene often laughs and says, you know, I, somewhat ironically, and she says, um, the only thing that was wrong back then during 84 into the early 90s I went on a on what could be described as an unbridled entrepreneurial spree. So if I met you or Raymond or anybody in a in a train in a pub at a session or anything, I'd invest and I'd be straight up the answer yes. And the one thing I never ever thought was what could possibly go wrong here. <laughs> and as we all know now, you know, lots of things can go wrong. And um, but I learned a lot of lessons. Come here, come here. Come here. We, there's, there's, there's decades that we could uh, go into. We just started the time. Wonderfully rich stuff, Brian, in every sense. Wonderfully rich and human right through it. Uh, you said just before the show, uh, you said that Irene and the kids used to hate you meeting new people. Explain that one. Yeah, well, the, one of their dreads, one of their fears was because I didn't even realise it then, but I had met some wonderful people, as I mentioned, Don Lamora and John Thompson, who was a... a, a a publisher and, a, and a, a, ma a man who ran several newspapers became a great friend himself and Geraldine became great friends of Ireland's and mine and I didn't realise then that I was building a network and that I was doing it instinctively and and, uh, and then trying to figure out how to bring those people together and we, we would set up we used to have breakfast mornings and we'd get guys who were running huge organisations to host a breakfast, Dennis O'Brien, the likes of uh, uh, Leo Crawford, a whole range of different people went out and organised. And so I would organise this to have a breakfast. And the deal was, a bit like your own thing, Colm, you could, there was a hard core of 12 people, but whoever was the host could bring two new people in and introduce them to everybody. So that was, that was well in train at that stage. And, and, uh, and I was enjoying it. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, these people influence you. So I, I would think one of another motto, if anything is to be gained out of, out of all of that experience, is to surround yourself with the best people that you can and to recognize in people like Raymond Sexton that we, that we both know and love. He, like he's, a, he's a classic example, fantastic uh, networker, genuinely interested in what people are doing and then trying to bring them together. And then the explosion happened in, I think a life-changing moment was for, for a lot of things, for newspapers, for the country, for me, for music and all, was Italian 90. I think the country woke up and, and discovered ourselves. I remember very funny, for me, funny anyway, um, I had a, gr a group of guys had decided to bring 
guitars with us and, and other instruments when we went on these trips. And of course, we thought we were very unique. And, um, and I remember one time I, I went to visit somebody uh, before I was going to find the pub that all the guys were in with the flags. They said, oh, the, the Irish flags are outside. You can't miss it. So I went off to visit my friend and then I got my guitar in my bag, hopped into the taxi and I said, won't be any problem. I don't know the name of them, but we'll find it. It was the seventh pub with the flags outside when I eventually found. But when I went into each one, there was another gobshite like myself and others singing all the same, you know, diddly idle, diddly dum dum and all that stuff. And um, so then we realised that this was actually Ireland on tour. And there were lots of Colm O'Briens and Brian Riley's all over the place and Jerry Lennon's and all those things. So I think that was a big awakening. Certainly for me, it was. It brought this love of music, live music um, to the fore. So we had the usual classic things then of the golf outings. And I went to, I was, I played a lot of golf and football after, thanks to those two doctors, I was well able to still afterwards. And um, I became captain of the links out in Port Marnock, the new links. I was in Malahide. I was in a whole lot of golf, played a lot of golf and played a lot of football. But, you know, you're the, you're the quintessential guy who's got uh, appears to have work life balance. You, you work hard and play hard and not not in the way that people would often think of that. You know, you, you just enjoy life. Everything is an adventure, whether it's work or sport or family. It's really exciting. Come here, and our music. Uh, you mentioned golf, Golfgate. Eamon, we, we have an image. I wouldn't mind you talking over if you wouldn't mind, uh, Brian, if you're comfortable doing that. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, well, uh, There you go. T tell us what yeah. that means. Well, well, well okay. So, so, so one of the things, you know, I was going to say to you, um, Colin, that um, jumping forward into the current day, like last Monday, I was, I was here in the apartment. We live in Malahide, so we downsized to an apartment. And we laughingly or jokingly call um, my daughter's bedroom. She's in working in London, as I said. I have another daughter. That's uh, Lynn works in um, London. And we've, I have another daughter, Alison, who works here with JLL, but works in, in Facebook. And my son is off doing, Neil is off, he's the eldest, he's off doing his... Um, a project around compostable products. And there's a wonderful story. Very proud of all of them, obviously. But um, I'm left here with Irene in the, in the thing. So Irene's very heavily involved with a childcare uh, group that I'm helping and working with in terms of, of expansion and funding. And that was lovely. But I laughingly, through this COVID thing, um, I'm in the what we call the bunker. So in her room, it's turned into the bunker. And I could be in there. And last Monday, I was going to say, was kind of an atypical day, but maybe an extreme version of it. But I had five, six Zoom conversations uh, during the day, each one at least an hour long. And if you look at the range of those, and it'll bring us to that Golfgate thing, because uh, that's on a serious note. So the there's, there's serious aspect to it, to every day, there's humour, and then there's the controversy. Um, one of those meetings was, you mentioned earlier, C19. So that was a, an introduction with this Novaris, um, which is a fantastic Irish technology um, headed by um, um, Kieran McBrien, who's also on the Midnight Sessions, another story, uh, but I'm backed by Bill McCabe and a friend of ours, Martin Scully, is involved with that. So we had, we had set up this C19 thing during COVID to do qualified introductions. So that's part of today's life. But in 
in, in terms of last Monday, I was sitting here. So I had, I had that Zoom call. I had one with Paddy Kelly, whom both of us know, who's a great man and great influence. And that's, uh, I'm chairman of Drawbridge. And that's to do with the renovation of a castle down in Carrick, down in Lockheed. Carrick and Shannon, um, people would might remember it from Grand Designs, but Sean Simon's castle down there, very heavily involved in that. And then I had a legacy issue with the vulture funds, and I had a group of people on there because when we had all those companies and factories and things, I used to involve the, the key guys in any business in the ownership of the building. And that worked out wonderfully well up in Font Hill and various other places until we got caught at the in the in the crash and then it became a legacy and, a, and, a, and still hanging around our necks so we had a zoom call on that that's that's up in uh Clonshock, that factory and, and and we've a vulture fund involved now so it's nasty um i had another zoom call with on the michael durkin that i mentioned earlier so we have this wonderful thing that we've set up now called italanda and it's an amalgamation of an italian company and an irish company the irish company sends troops of singers and dancers to China, to Australia, to America. And I went over to America, actually, and, and saw them in action. They do a thing called World of Musicals, where they bring all the big numbers, the big shows, and they reproduce them uh, for audiences throughout the States. He's just heading off to Australia as soon as, they, as this COVID thing lifts, and they have a sellout tour over there. So... That was another call. And then I had, but anyway, I also was very conscious that that evening was a very significant birthday for Irene. And it was my turn to do the gala dinner, as we call it. So, and, and, and to put things in perspective, it, it would, and you could do the maths. This was the 50th time that I helped Irene celebrate her birthday. So we would have met very young, uh, CY and Fairview and the Grove and all that stuff. So that it tells its own story. And, but anyway, I was doing that. So here we have a situation where I had a number of politicians in the, from the rural um, um, independent group on a Zoom call with Ed Honahan. And because Ed is uncomfortable with technology, he had come out here. So Ed is sitting down here at the tail end of the day. I've already had five Zoom conversations. He's locked into this conversation with Michael Fitzmaurice and with Brian O'Donnell. And, and it's about this piece of legislation that we're working on, which is a, an amendment to the Insolvency Act. All very serious stuff. And, um, but I was very conscious that Ireland was going to be back shortly and I was supposed to have this gala dinner. So I ended up putting out the candles and lighting them and setting the table. And I don't think poor Ed knew what was happening. He thought, he thought maybe this was go, going off the rails. So I'm opening the, the bottle of wine, I'm, I'm setting up and I have the steaks on the, on the thing. Anyway, it was just a funny moment. True. That's a typical day. So you asked me about Golfgate. So that's the serious stuff. I was in a conversation. I was going to leave this till the end, Colin, but we'll, we'll strike while the iron is hot. I sold a company to a friend, a fellow who's become a great friend, um, David Mitchell. And he went on to sell his company for a billion dollars uh, to R.R. Donnelly. And David had become a great friend, but he's Scottish and he has a great love of Burns, Robert Burns. So he every year would do these Burns suppers. And uh, he invited me to go and speak on behalf of the lassies in, um, in Scotland to a castle. So off I went. And that led to us having a 
uh, a burn supper here in, in Ireland. And I searched all around to try and find a, a suitable castle, not realising, of course, that Malahide Castle was right under my nose and perfect. And I had to get a guest speaker. And I, I, I was telling you earlier, I got David Norris to do the guest speaking. And David said, how could I refuse an opportunity to come wearing a kilt to 38 men in a castle all drinking whiskey. He said, how can I turn up an opportunity like that? And the Americans, of course, are there. There's two Americans from R.R. Donnelly who had just bought your man's business. And one of them turns around and said, who hired the gay guy? <laughs> and they said, Riley. And they said, oh, he says, I figures. <laughs> but David was world-class, did, did the thing. Anyway, I'm going off to do this George Burns thing in Scotland and speak on behalf of the lassies. I was a little bit nervous about it. So I was bringing my guitar with me and I had had it in mind to sing right on as the tail end of my speech. But I, I got a bit of great advice out in Holt. Irene and I were out for a meal in Holt. And this uh, fellow came over and he said, I believe you're speaking on behalf of the lassies in Scotland. He said, Brian, if you're doing anything like that, all you need to focus on is your opening remark. Be sure what you're going to do. Have an anecdotal story or joke in the middle and then know where you want to finish. So... Um, I want to finish, if we can today, Colin, on a positive note, which is the, my disposition throughout um, and looking forward. But I think there are some serious things going on as well. So the reason I mentioned all that is I mentioned there Ed Honehan. Yesterday I had a conversation with John McGuinness, who is the chairman of the Finance Committee. So I would have started a journey, uh, ironically initiated by Irene. So we're sitting like everybody else when the crash came here and you had Lucinda Creighton and Richard Bruton straight out of the traps. And they're on the television saying, well, people who are in debt need to deal with the banks on a case-by-case -case basis. And I remember nearly, and I'm not aggressive, but I remember nearly taking off my slipper and throwing it at the television saying, what a fuckers. I mean, they're, they're, they're throwing people to the wolves here. And it just seemed wrong. And I remember saying, you know, somebody should, somebody should, somebody should, all this stuff. So Irene, of course, casually looks up and she said, you know, Brian, she said, you keep saying that. She said, did, did it ever dawn on you that the somebody might be you? That, you know, don't keep saying somebody should do something about this or thing. So with that in mind, she read about um, the Bally Hay says no um, protest in Cork. And this was where Dermot O'Flynn, had a, a journalist, had organised his family in a small group to walk from one end of Bally Hay to the other, which takes about 10 minutes. It's so small. But they did it every week and we went down and eventually it gathered momentum. I met some wonderful people when I went there and that inspired me to set up Right to Homes. And uh, I remember getting into a bit of controversy with that as well because this group of people started attacking, attacking me that I didn't even know. Now, one or two of them have become friends since. but uh, And they were some of these guys were involved in the... Um, Apollo House thing. Do you remember where they where they took over Apollo House and all that? Um, but anyway, they were having a gut pop at me online, and some of my friends were ringing me saying, "Brian, you have to say something here because they're saying that you're a, a Johnny Come Lately jumping on the bandwagon character." So I contacted um, Terry McMahon, who is a tremendous friend now, but Terry was 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 a big character in that, and Glenn Hansard and all the others. And I said, "Listen, guys." Just to get the record straight, I set up right to homes before there was a right to anything. And I, and, I, and, I, and I was only doing it 
with a with a, a, a view to keeping people in their homes and finding ways to deal with legislation. Because I, I I realized earlier on, you've probably heard the term the lay litigants, you know, where people have no money left, they can't afford big lawyers. And even if you could, the lawyers aren't equipped, Irish solicitors aren't equipped to challenge the vulture funds in the banks. So I realized that early on and I set about being an advocate for legislation, which was what brought Ed Honan into my life. But So I'm in the middle of that. I'm trying to get the right to homes thing going. I had offered right to homes and that label and the website and everything we'd set up. I had offered it to people before profit and any of those organizations. I said, you can have it. Um, I don't really want it, but I just try, I think something needs to be done. I engaged with Fianna Fáil. Um, I was invited into the finance committee. Um, I met John McGuinness then, and um, I was appalled by the apathy, not, not of John now, John is a tremendous man, but the, the sheer disconnect with the Irish politicians. So if anybody's ever watched that on TV, you do a live presentation, you have a panel, and you're sitting in front of the TDs, and then you've got the, the chairman, who's John, and his, his civil servants, and you have the public gallery, and it's televised. So I invited Ed Honahan to come in as a, uh, on a panel of experts, and, and I think it's very telling, and it relates to Golfgate. So the photograph we're looking at there. So Ed, when he did his piece, and bear in mind, he's master of the high court. So he has, in, in perfect dramatic silence, he, he, he left it silent for a few minutes. And then he, he started reading out names. Now, bear in mind, I said right to homes up in 2014. This was now 2018. So four years of advocacy and trying to persuade politicians and lobbying and all that stuff had got us to the point where we had a piece of legislation that Fianna Fáil were committed to and had, had actually asked me to put together um, a people's bill which would, which would help protect and keep people in their homes and help give some defence against the horror of what was going on where banks were handing these loans over to vulture funds and the vulture funds were like a black economy here, um, a horrendous development. So I'm there. Ed anyway sits up, Colin, and he's, he, he just starts reading out names it was a fantastic moment and he says you know Colin O'Brien Brian Riley uh, Deirdre McGuinness Irene Murphy blah 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 he goes on and on I, I, I can't remember 30 odd names he reads and then he looks up and he says does anybody know who those people are and of course all the TD senators are sitting around saying no he's Ed says well neither do I but it's public record all of these people have lost their homes now you should know and he said, it's your responsibility. It's the legislator that has to, has to deal, grapple with this because what's happening is wrong. And when you hear stories like David Hallwood throw out, and quite rightly, that if you imagine Crow Park on all Ireland hurling final day, pre-COVID, just imagine that everybody in there is in danger of losing their homes and all, the, all that flows from that. So then you could, so going back to my newspaper days and my, and my marketing and all the rest of it, I started getting an artist to produce cartoons. So I would have a cartoon of Michal Martin sitting on the fence and, you know, and, and nothing happening behind. And I came up with this one when Golfgate came out, because if you can imagine 
just how irritating that is. So leave, leaving, leaving uh, COVID aside, at that, and the guy sitting in the, in, the, in, the, in the golf cart there is supposed to be Brian Hayes. Now, so Brian Hayes was in the Department of Finance and, or in, in government, and now he's working for the banks. You know, he's at Golfgate. So is a, 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 a judge. So are the bankers, and so are the vulture funds, and so are the politicians. Now, what the hell are they all doing there, cosy together? And these people, don't forget, are supposed to be protect. They, they have a, a social uh, contract with the people. They're supposed to be in there doing that. I think when they walk through the, that gate, in my experience of five years down there, when they walk through that gate, they leave their conscience behind them, with, with a couple of notable exceptions. The rest of them are useless. And Fianna Fáil, I think, the sooner they're wiped off the map uh, in the political world, uh, the better for Ireland. And we'll get the, the change that we need. So Golfgate was hugely irritating. But the serious note I was going to leave you on to, to, today is this one. So I asked Ed, and he doesn't mind because he's, he's, he's given interviews and he's written articles, even in his position today. I asked him when the hearsay bill was passed before Christmas. So there's a group of guys, journalists, doing a, a, working on a documentary, and I'm helping them with it. And I'm introducing them to various key players, both academics, political, bankers, and so on. And they said, this word keeps popping up, you know, about collusion. And I said, well, no, it's far more serious than that. And I'm going to quote two men. And they don't mind, because they've gone on the record themselves. Ed Honahan said to me in a conversation when I said, how could vulture funds, we've spent five years trying to bring in legislation. I have a bill here. You can see that. That's the Affordable Housing and Fair Mortgage Bill. Years of work went into that, drafted by Ed and others. Four politicians promoted by John McGuinness and then betrayed by Michal Martin and, and a small cohort in Fianna Fáil who blocked it. Now, when you look at that, and then you have the Court of Appeal upholds uh, a case where somebody challenged a vulture fund. So the vulture fund had a problem, took it to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal upheld the litigant's um, case. So the vulture funds now had a problem. Within a matter of weeks, legislation was changed to facilitate the vulture fund. So that's when you move. And this is a quote from John McGuinness, this is a quote from Ed Honan, and a quote from myself. That is the moment you move from collusion to corruption. So we've got a corrupt system now that's incapable of fixing itself. They have the numbers. They, 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 they hop to the vested interests. And what you have now is tens of thousands of families thrown to the wolves, literally. Michael, or Michael Noonan, thought he was very funny when he stood up on the doll saying that vultures, you know, do us a useful service. They clean up dead carcasses. But that just gives you some idea of the mindset. And then you've got people like Michal Martin who don't give a monkeys about what's happening to those people. They don't even count anymore. If your loan has been sold from a bank to a vulture fund, you don't even come into the statistics anymore. That's dealt with, done. Anyway, that's enough of the serious stuff. Brian, 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 uh, thank you for that. Yes, indeed, Eamon, thanks for leading the, the bull of bus there. Uh, that was rich uh, in, in detail and passion, and I just couldn't 
interrupt. It would have been wrong of me to get in the way at all. So that 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 story. So thank you for sharing it. Um, collusion. That was the moment collusion turned to, to corruption. Whoa, that's heavy. That is heavy. Yes, yeah. and it's real. Yeah, and but, right. You know, Colin, to interrupt you, and sorry for this. The dogs in the streets knew Charlie how he was bent, and and so did all his colleagues. And they did nothing about it, and he escaped. People knew that Bertie Ahern wasn't running up and down trees, and he only became a, 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 a figure of ridicule after he lost the trappings of power. And when you look at him now, it, you know, he's, he's not what we thought he was. You had all of those characters within Fianna Fáil who were on the take and who were uh, uh, facilitating all types of corruption. And yet, these people have the balls to stand up and say, our record speaks for itself. Of course it does. Look at the, look what they've left. Most of the positive things that have happened here, um, and even to speak on a positive note about developers and so on, the developers didn't all blow the, the stuff up their nose. They built the infrastructure that is the IFSC, that are all those fantastic buildings that attract the foreign direct investment. Nothing to do with the government or, or the people who, are, uh, um, who claim credit for that. I mean, if you look at the National Children's Hospital and all of those things, you just have to look at the mess they make of anything they get near. Completely. And it's not ineptitude anymore. I've spent five years going in and out there. I've met every one of them, nearly. Um, some lovely people. They're very courteous, as you know, but they're spineless and they do nothing. And, and what we need is more independent-minded people in Dáil because that's the only place all of this can change for the better. Thanks indeed for that uh, the, the, the Buddha bus started in Geneva there with Christina. Thanks for that. Uh, come here, just, uh, we, we, I, I, want to, I want to talk about the midnight sessions in just a second, Eamon. You might throw us up that, that image. Eamon, please, uh, the image for midnight sessions. Thanks. Um, but uh, just before we go there, um, Irene, I was just go going back to the time you were throwing your slippers. I actually smiled at you, picking up, taking off your slipper and throwing it at the telly uh, when they were upsetting you. And uh, Irene basically said, Brian, do you not think it's, you need to be doing something about this? And it reminded me of a phrase that I came across years ago. And the phrase is, they is you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You. So if you ever find yourself saying, do you know what they should do? Well, you need to realize that they is you because they'll never do it. And if you're passionate enough about it, you need to get off your armchair and go do something about it. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what this man, Brian O'Reilly, has done in spades. Come here, midnight sessions. Show us the image there. And um, and then Lynn, I believe Lynn is here in the room, in the cafe. Oh, lovely. Lynn, we'll, we'll bring Lynn in just a second. Tell us about the midnight sessions first. And Lynn, you might pop in and say a quick hello. Okay, lovely. I didn't know that. That's great. Uh, hi, Lynn. That's my the daughter I mentioned that's in London. We're very proud of her. And uh, she, she, um, she, I think, inherited the love of music. And um, But the, the Midnight Sessions... Okay, so a bit like yourself, Colm, um, when you talked about um, the setting, the establishment of this wonderful entity and the reaching out to people and so on, um, Michael Durkin and I, one of the things, one of the passions I had arising from all those trips and all the rest, it's not that I'm, I, I have any great competency, but I, again, being a catalyst, I love putting a session together and making it happen and getting all the right people around the table. So, and one of the, I think one of the great joys in life is to be around a table, uh, be it in a restaurant or in a bar in Ireland or abroad, it doesn't really matter. And if you introduce music, as we all know, and particularly if you're Irish, um, away it goes. But you just need to get the right mix and you can't force it. 
and it all just happens um, wonderfully well. So I love that. And we were planning to have um, a session out in a friend of ours restaurant out in Hope. And we, were, we had a little plan to do that. And then, of course, the COVID restrictions came in. And um, I was lamenting the fact that we now couldn't do this. So Michael Durkin and myself were having this conversation. I mentioned Michael earlier on about the O'Connells and the Canises, and he's in the music industry, and he's a terrific musician, and, and he loves all this storytelling and all the rest. And we were going to go out there with his wife Kay and Irene and a, and a group of others, Mick O'Brien, who's a world-class uh, Ellen Piper and all the rest. And now we were thwarted. So we, <laughs> no sooner had I said that, you know what, maybe we'd set up a Zoom or a, a WhatsApp group and share a few tunes and invite a few people into it. I barely had the words out of my mouth when Michael was on with his squeeze box and he had put up a song already. And there was only four or five of us on it. So very quickly, it became 100 people. And, um, and then, then it, it, like you know from this, you, you need to be persistent, obviously, and you need to put some work in and you need to be surrounded by good people who have an interest, a shared interest. So between the two of us then, we started, it started spreading out and then some really cool, good people came on. And I, I became very aware that we needed to keep the bar, keep a control on the bar here. Because if it gets too high, well, people be reluctant to share. And, but if it's too low, obviously, there's no point. Of, so we needed to get the mix right. So every so often, I'd throw a song up myself. And I'd say, I'd always preface it by saying, that my main objective here now is to bring the bar back down a bit so that everybody else feels comfortable. And that. That, was, that kind of took a life of its own. As I said, there was some tremendous Saturday nights um, with, with sometimes maybe... 30, 40 contributions on the night and we get the bottle of wine out, have a glass, turn on the WhatsApp or the, the, the WhatsApp and then people would throw up these, take a little video themselves. Um, there's over 500 people with Marion Shanley's help. That's wow. grown to over 500 people on, on Facebook and we have over 100 in, as the core group on WhatsApp. Wow. And some wonderful things happened then which adds momentum to it. So the idea was that people would either put up songs. A, a guy who's become a, a great friend of ours and a great friend of Midnight Sessions, Mick Hogan, actually wrote a song called Perhaps. And so perhaps being, you know, I'll know you when I meet you and I'll greet you when I meet you and, and all these lovely words he, he wrote. And, he, and we put it to music. And before Christmas, um, I got Mick O'Brien and Lynn and others and we went out to Holt when we were, when it was kind of semi-restricted and we had the social distancing and all that. Um, and we actually performed it and had, uh, and um, so Mick was, the bowl Mick was there after writing this song. And here was Mick O'Brien and Michael Durkin and, and um, Kieran Olahan playing away, proper musicians playing his song about the midnight sessions. It was a great Wonderful. thing. Wonderful. So a couple of, we, Peter Miller then came into our lives and Peter is terrific producer of these videos. So he had an ambition. I had asked him to do something about Midnight Sessions and he wasn't really that keen, but then he realized that there were some quality musicians involved. And he had a, a lifelong ambition to, to turn Mark Knopfler's Brothers in Arms to do it with an Irish twist to it. So we did that and did a proper production and it was a wonderful experience. And then, then, um, one of our stalwarts 
and it's a COVID story, I suppose. The man, uh, he was tremendous. He's a colleague of John Webber Works. Lovely, lovely person, former bank executive. And he was suffering with cancer. And he was in his hospital bed and he'd sit up cheerfully and he'd be watching all the contributions and he'd have a comment to make about everybody. So he became part of the chemistry of the whole thing. And Lord rest him, he, he, um, he was in hospital for tests and he contracted um, COVID and he was gone in no time at all. And it was a, a terrible loss. But it bonded the hundred and odd people on the WhatsApp group. So the, the heartfelt contributions from people who had never physically met him, but they had met him through this format. And that was a wonderful outpouring. And it kind of gave new momentum to the midnight sessions. So to commemorate his life, we then did another collaboration again with Peter Miller and with Mick O'Brien playing the pipes and then everybody contributing. And we did Tourdom the Love, which was to me was just the icing on the cake. And on we go. We're still at it and we're still in lockdown. Yeah. Bula Bus, Bula Bus, Catalyst Supreme. Beautiful work. And, and the Brothers in Arms production, absolutely stunning. I think Lynn features in that, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking sure. of which, Lynn, unmute, come in and tell us about the DA. Hi. Hi, everybody. Um, Hi, yeah, well, for, first of all, I'm very impressed to see that these stories can be told in just over an hour, all together. So I know that now for a fact, so that's, that's great information to have. <laughs> um, See, my brother Neil is on the call as well, and my sister Alison was here earlier. She had to go for a, for a meeting. But, um, Dad, you mentioned earlier that growing up, <clears throat> that basically mom reared us because you were working the whole time. But I think we'd all agree that the um, the qualities that have come out about you today, like your love of sport, passion for music, entrepreneurial spirit, go-getter, have been... Um, unfortunately, none of us got all of them, but they've been divided between the three of us. Um, and um, yeah, and we're, as you mentioned, you're proud of us. And I think I'll speak on, all, on behalf of the three of us when I say we're immensely proud of you too. And it's great to hear it all kind of come together today in a, in a, in a story of your life. So well done. Yeah. That's not all the time. Your life so far, your life so far. <laughs> I, I, feel like, I, feel, I feel like Eamon Andrews here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah where's the red book yeah there you go yeah lynn that's love. lovely to meet you lynn and thanks for that and did you, you see too, where's neil neil's down he doesn't have his camera on he might have children hanging off him okay. you're <laughs> welcome to pop in if you wish neil and say hello listen we're going to go to princess shelley lynn thanks for that going to go to princess shelley for a second uh, this has been a longer than usual show but i think you'd all agree and thank you for, for staying with us uh, beautifully rich uh, and I'm, I'm smiling here at Lynn saying, managed to get all those stories in, in, in under an hour. And uh, uh, because we usually get all the stories in, in less than that, but this is Brian Riley we're talking about. And I mean, in fairness, such a rich life. Um, so uh, before we go to Princess Shelley, two quick questions, Brian, very quick, if you don't mind responses, right? Uh, one is, what are you taking with you from COVID that you're not letting go of? Um, I think with well, COVID, I had, when I talked about reinventing myself, um, after the crash in 2010, which was a big chapter of my life, um, I used the, when I sat back, I realized the network that I had and how to do that and how to communicate and so on. That overlapped into COVID. And I think one of the things I've learned in COVID is that other people came into their own bunkers. They couldn't move around and do all the things that we do naturally and, and want to do. So we had to find a new way to communicate. And we've got so many technologies available to us, whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook or Zoom or whatever. So 
I think getting up and reaching out, you know, every, every network starts with one person and you can just keep building on that. And then you'll find people who will introduce you to other ones and bring you into things. So I'd, I'd say joining up dots, engaging and, and, and not letting COVID get on top of you because there's a, there's a way and um, you just have to find it yourself. It won't come to you. So you've got to reach out. I think that'd be one. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, we're back to the day is you start something. Don't be waiting on anybody else to start it. Just start, see where it leads. So. Yeah, Mark, can I, can I just read this very quickly? Yeah, can, um, I, of I, um, I, I put it up on the other, the other day and I sent it as I have done on numerous occasions. I sent it to every politician who's in my, who's in my data book. And it's a poem that was written by a guy called Martin Neumuller. And he posted this, believe it or not, in Nazi Germany. And he went around and they, it, it, it bugged them. And they never, I don't think they ever caught him. But he, he would post these things on things around. And, and here it was. And it, and it struck, struck me that every politician here should listen to it. And people as well should, should think about this. What he said was, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And he says, then they came for the trade unionists. I didn't speak out again because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Now, you know, what happens in Ireland, I think, and this is the apathy I talked about in the mainstream media who have failed us, the politicians have failed us, specifically in relation to that mountain of distress and debt that arose from that crash in 2010. Don't forget the banks were bailed out. The government got off the hook. They blamed a few, a few banks and a few politicians. But essentially, it's up to people to get up and do something about it because Irish people are so typical. They shrug their shoulders and what can you do? You had one or two high-profile journalists who did write articles, but they only wrote an article like Charlie Weston or something when he got a letter from a vulture fund. Oh, shock horror, you know, or when, it's like when if your mother or your father or somebody belonged to you ends up on a hospital trolley you get all incensed and then you wonder why the politician doesn't do something and why the newspaper doesn't publish it. And yet this is all happening right now, right under our nose. These guys are getting away with murder. They're doing nothing. And they're still talking about their record speaks for itself. I rest, I rest my case. Thank you for that, Brian. And, uh, you know, your case is well and tr truly rested. But thank you for waking some of us up to the realities of what's going on out there. Second question then to Princess Shelley, you have 60 seconds to answer this one is, you meet somebody who is in distress, not because necessarily of debt, but because of COVID, what would you recommend they do? What one step could you recommend they would take? I, I yeah, not to bottle it up, I think, you know, to reach out. And as I said, that, that could be one person and, and realize that everybody else is going through the, their own journey. And they're not judging and they're not, they're not, you know, so if you're, if you're stressed and if you're de-stressed, there are groups and there are people out there and people care more than, than you imagine. And when you, and you know, a cup of coffee or something like this is a tremendous yeah. platform for that. Good stuff, Brian. Beautiful, beautiful. And I suppose that's what the Coffee at 11 show has become over the last year. We've, we've all hung around together over a cup of coffee. Midnight sessions, the same. Start something, invite people in. Great people attract more great people. And oh, and, and Colin, just remember, Michael Durkin's mother told him, and he passed it on to me, I see your guitar in the background there. Whether you're good, bad, or indifferent, or whether you just want to listen to, to music, music is no weight to carry through life.
Wonderful. Great stuff. Come here, Brian. Better go to Princess Shelley or she'll leave the team. Hi. <laughs> hey, Brian. Lots of lovely comments in the chat there to share with you. I'm actually going to change up the order a little bit. Um, one of our cafe attendees has actually delayed a meeting so that he could ask you a question. Um, so, Donak, if I can invite you in. you I had a question there for our guest, Brian. Um, if you'd like to ask Brian directly there, we can give you a few minutes to answer, Brian, if you're happy. Brian, great, great, great story, great family. I'm delighted here. I'm delighted to be bunkered in a world-famous golf course here. Um, uh, for those in the know, the coffin bunker is, uh, is, 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 is the coined phrase about the bunker that's near me. Uh, and I love that uh, segue to Scotland that uh, you, um, you pointed to. So thank you for that. Um, but at some point, you just drifted over the point that you were headhunted. So can you tell me a little bit about um, being headhunted? Uh, did it open a door for you? What was the hook? Were you open to looking? Um, and uh, any, any tips? Okay. Do that. Okay. The, the, well, I, I, yeah, headhunted. So what actually happened was, as I remarked to Colm, I only had one proper job ever. And, and you know, now looking back at myself, which I don't do um, often, but I, looking back, I did want to try and organize training and various other things within while I was in that situation. I had become uh, a chapel officer, which is a trade union type thing in the, in the, in that entity. And I was also uh, um, had become a supervisor at one stage and I was involved in, in, um, in organizing groups within the, the company. So somehow or other, I think that information, um, a person who was running a company in Terenure, um had become aware of me and put a proposition to me. So when I say headhunting, what he actually did was he had uh, he had a situation that it was out of control. He had issues with trade union elements within his business. He had difficulties with contracts that he was tied up in, and he was having great difficulty getting the things produced. And and if you know anything about newspapers and publishing. Deadlines are everything. You can't miss a deadline. So he literally, the headhunting thing was great. I met him and he handed me a checkbook and he just said to me, you can write your own salary. And so I ended up taking shares instead and I, I became a shareholder. If I was going to run the thing properly, that ended up in the way that it had to be. So I, I ended up becoming a shareholder and I ended up owning the company in the end and, and went on. But to do the job properly, I felt to break up the logjam that was there, I needed to bring this group with me because I couldn't do it on my own. So that, that's how the confrontation with Robert Maxwell came up because I collected seven guys who were going to. So not only did I, was I headhunted and moved over, but I took six people with me. Um, so it was, a, it was the one and only experience I've ever had of that. But um, I don't Fantastic. know if that the question but. yeah yeah well it, it started with a situation that was put in front of you so that was the hook the situation and you yeah and, and the solution then you know to to be part of the solution and 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 that to this day is still part of what what uh, i'm about yeah and i obviously love, love what you said about the vultures because they're, they're out there in every in every business boardroom unfortunately so uh, it's good to get that wisdom okay thank Great you stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Danak, and thank you for delaying your meeting. Um, he's joining us as a regular cafe attendee in Troon, beautiful Troon in Scotland. So I'm delighted wow. to 
you stuck around. Um, I'm sure you really loved the the story with the kilt and everything that Brian referred to earlier. So I, I did absolutely. And Brian, if you can bring your kilt, there's a game of golf waiting for you here in Trun and a pint of Guinness. Uh, I played, played there, so you're a lucky man to be there. Yeah, lovely. Come on over anytime. Thank, thank you. you thank you for contributing and sticking around Donak, and thank you for a great answer brian that was really good um so just to share before i hand back to column this morning this afternoon we have um some lovely comments in the chat box it's been so lovely to have you all here um we started off with cash of course our editor-in-chief who thanked eamon for our wonderful alchemist who shared us in a lovely mindful moment um as we kicked off the show so it's just just a typical cafe. She said, thanks for that, Eamon. I really needed that today. And he was like, you're most welcome. Um, Sarah was saying about that gathering you were talking about, Brian, um, where the families all getting together on Zoom. She said, it sounds like really great fun. And then we got to see the photo. Couldn't believe it. I think there was 27 people in that photo. And Donog, who we've just heard from, said, um, how did you get everyone together and looking at the camera? I think we've all had that um, trying to get everybody. There was no blinking. It was a really, really good picture. I certainly love seeing it. Ashling Fitzgerald, um, great to have you. I know you're a newcomer. Um, she was asking to know more about the midnight music sessions, which I understand that we've, she'd heard more since she popped that question in. Um, so Jackie was enjoying all your stories as well, Brian. And um, then I saw there was a little bit of banter. And this is what raised it um, between Eamon and I were messaging over and back, um, trying to ascertain the relationships in the cafe, you know. And um, Peter said, I think Lynn is disapproving of this hospital Guinness story. You know, you were telling us about the wheelchair and um, then Lynn popped in and was like, ha ha, not at all, Peter. I just never heard that part before. When the poor guy damaged his back again, he left that part out, part out before. And I saw, Brian, this collective gasp when you said that man fell out again. Um, so it was that little um, interaction between Peter and Lynn that kind of made Eamon and I go, I think she might be a relation. So that's when we reached out to you, Lynn. And it was really great that we, we love in the cafe to get to hear somebody else who's related or connected in some way it just makes the story all the more richer and full of texture so uh, we're really delighted you agreed to pop in Ashling Fitzgerald again was really enjoying all your stories you're a natural storyteller Brian like it's just so beautiful to listen to you do you know what you mean really really good um, so like I say lots and lots of lovely comments Donna Cadast there um your, Brian, all your links are in the chat box. So everybody, if you um, want to save the conversation or copy and paste, you can find Brian on. He's put your LinkedIn, the Right to Homes and the Facebook page. So Brian, if it's a thing that you would like to, um, if anybody would like to link up with Brian, all his links are there. And Eamon also popped in that lovely poem that you shared as well, Brian, just before. And I could see a lot of people reading it and taking down the author and that kind of a thing. Um, so that was really good. Christina again asked how one might participate in the midnight sessions and as did Ashton Fitzgerald and Peter said if anyone wants to join Brian will send an invite so uh, that's giving you a job to do there Brian <laughs> and then finally um, Mark Reddy popped in and said Brian is a most engaging empathic caring man he oozes altruism and has a shared happiness and goodness in a selfless way to everybody he has met a magical gentle man Indeed, it's a privilege to know him. Isn't that a beautiful testimonial, Brian? Well, I'd give him a little, a little wave to that, yeah. Thank you. That's a lovely comment, yeah. 
Yeah, really nice comment. And, you know, I like the way he said gentleman, because that was within the first five minutes of the show. And you'd said something about your dad's, you know, what you'd put a, a gentleman and it had come back as one word. And you said, I don't even know why I'm saying that anyway. And you moved on. And I thought to myself, that's why, because the cafe, you say something. And that resonated for me immediately. And I'm sure it will to the 17 and a half million people that this more possibly by the time your goes out Sunday week that this could go out to so and that's why it's just such a beautiful conversation Brian so thank you so much for sharing it today just before I hand back to Colm I can see your son Neil has his hand up um, so if it's just before I hand back if you would like to pop on your camera Neil say something to your pop um, I can give you a second there. I'll ask you to unmute. So I saw that when we were hearing from Lynn, Brian, and um, that he did pop the face in. It looked like he was on a walk or something like that. Yeah. How are you, Neil? Good. Yeah, great, great, great. Say <laughs> hello to Grandad. Yeah, no, reiterate everything, everything that people have said, including Lynn, obviously. Um, massive influence on, on all our lives. And, uh, you know, you probably were looking to say, but uh, the, the journey I'm on, which is which is has a, a very high chance of success and uh, it's going to be a big endeavor and um, started off with Brian and his spark with, with Ken Peterson, just uh, an idea was thrown out and Brian jumped on it, passed it on to me. And I've, I've been working on it for the last three years. So um, it's, it's, it's been a massive success and, and, and will possibly change the course of my family's life. Well, my immediate, my, my, uh, my, uh, my wife, my two boys. So uh, no, it's, it's uh, no, fascinating to hear all the stories. And um, as Lynn said, it's incredible that you've got them into, what is it, an hour and a half now? An hour and a half? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's pressure for the future. Neil, I'm so glad you raised the hand. And thank, we you, got thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Beside you. Okay. Uh, Cheers, thank Sh you. Right, Shelley, Shelley, if I may, thanks, Neil. That was lovely. Um, Shelley, if I may, just looking at Neil and Lynn there just reminds me of something else. Um, a few weeks ago, um, the local headmaster from Malahide here from Scoliosa passed away, sadly, Brian Cannon. But I, can you hear me? Yes, I can indeed. Yeah. yeah. So, but I remember when they were graduating, all of them, all three of them, Neil, Lynn and Alison, um, he gave the same speech, Lord Reston, but he, gave, he said the same thing. And it's very relevant to what uh, the question uh, I was asked there earlier about COVID and what you do. Because what he said was, you know, Looking out at all of you, he said, and, and it struck it strikes me, he said, every year, some of you would want to be engineers, sound technicians, bankers, God forbid. Um, this, you know, all, even table dancers, he said. Some of you could be pilots. God only knows. But he says, do this exercise. Go When you're finished here in school, go up to the graveyard and walk around and look at the headstones and look what people are remembered for. Being a loving father, mother, uh, brother, sister, whatever it is, it never mentions that you had 10 factories or five cars or any of that stuff. So that your family, your friends, your relationships, and the only way you can nurture those things is to reach out and connect and, and be involved with them. It was, I thought it was a very sobering uh, note you know, from him. Yeah, beautiful. And a beautiful sure. sentiment as well to, uh, 
to bring bring that section of of, of today's coffee at eleven show to hand me back to Colin. That's really beautiful, Brian. Really, really nice, and something we can will resonate with all of us, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, thank you very, very much for that. Seamus May has said thank you for a lovely show, and Mark Reddy has said a simply brilliant show. Thumbs up. Well done, everybody, and musical emojis. So Brian, it's not quite time to go. I'm going to hand you back over to the host, um, but just thank you for being a really riveting guest this morning on the show. And Colin, it's back over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Shelley. Uh, thanks, Shelley. And you can see, Brian, why that is, in fact, many people's favourite part of the show, The Princess. <laughs> it's, uh, and I'm, I'm a fan, too, because I get, do you know what happens? I get to take a step back. I went and made coffee for myself, came back, and I listened to all the richness in terms of the comments. Lynn, thanks for popping in. Uh, Neil, thanks for popping in and, uh, and sharing those lovely moments with your dad. Um, but it's lo lovely, Brian, lovely to have you have had you here. Uh, a longer show than usual, but that was to be expected because of uh, the richness, the richness of the life that you've had and are having, and uh, and the impact you're you're having on uh, on Ireland, Ireland Inc. Ireland Inc. I think that's the, the one. If I may, I need to draw the, the show to a close. It's been lovely uh, having everybody here. Thank you for joining us on the Coffee Eleven show today. In particular, I want to thank the team, Princess Shelley, big heart emoji for uh, producing today's show. Eamon Smith, a.k.a. The Monk, for keeping us safe and secure in that beautiful grounding moment. Tim Kelly, the resident pub, for that lousy joke at the start. And uh, again, for uh, aiding uh, Eamon keep the thing, the thing safe. And Katrina O'Brien for sitting in the background, the real boss, taking notes, what she's keeping in, what she's cutting out, because she's going to edit this and put it out to that worldwide audience that has exceeded 17 million. Now, there are, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? So... <laughs> The 17 point something million is where we share it out with a group's approvals into groups all around the world that and the, the audience total 17.3 million or whatever it was last, last week. So we've no idea who stumbled across the Coffee at 11 show and indeed this episode. So what Shelley said earlier, Brian, is you know, the, the stuff that you shared, it will find its way to the right soul out there sometime and it'll have an impact. So thank you for that. And finally... Allow me thank Wigwam for making all this happen. The Limerick Post, indeed, for supporting us here in uh, season four of the Coffee Level Show and keeping Limerick posted. Hashtag Limerick and Proud. And Brian Riley, it's been our pleasure having you in the Coffee Level Show. Namaste. Can I leave you with one final thought, Colin? And it's a motto for myself, and I've been doing it all my life. And that is end every day with a thank you, just in your own head, your own mind. That's the last thought. And I do that, I have done all my life probably going back to that hospital thing. And then start every day with a smile. Like, and I do do that. Smile to yourself, and it sets the tone for the whole day. And then meet somebody like Paddy Kelly or yourself, and it extends it all over the place. So happy days, and thank you for having me. Thank you.